We good to go? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> no press. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I don't like that. It <laughs> <laughs> is a mistake, you. dude. Yeah. Diva. <laughs> the first diva. Look, you two do Lady this every week. I have, and we've practice. never once re retook an intro. I don't buy that. Not off hello, dude. You know, like, <laughs> maybe if we started coughing. I know, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's 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 the only reason. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I misspoke. I'm just getting too self conscious. Hi there, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Take two. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He will have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello. Welcome to The Gauntlet. I'm Alex, one of your hosts on a temporary basis. I'm here with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast where the host picks a topic and the other two pick films to deal with that topic. This week, I picked the topic, and my topic was Ladies' Night. What films did you two bring to buck up against or deal with this topic this evening? Mm -hmm. Should probably explain for our weekly listeners as well, you know, that Ryan Saunders is currently on assignment. So very, very grateful for Alex to step in here and spell his ass, so... Yeah, savvy listeners will remember our episode on Lisbon, you know, was uh, in anticipation of Ryan uh, going there and turning into garbage. Yeah. Um, and uh, we look forward from a, a communique uh, from him, you know, as he's doing uh, the, the customary gauntlet field work. Yeah. Going full fantoma there, dude. So, Alex, why... Uh, did you pick this topic? Could you could you tell us a little bit about the the reasoning behind your choice of of theme? Sure. Uh, I explained uh, not last week, but two weeks ago on the one hundredth episode. No, it was last week. It was last week. Yeah, no. you just came in here. Oh, right. I did. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, last week I explained that the previous two times I was on this show, the topics that I was here for, uh, one about friendship and one about the kids playing when the no parents, parents are away, um, all four films across those two topics ended up being exclusively about young women, girls, and and women and older women. And so I was just, without thinking about it too hard, riffing on the idea that I'm bringing a feminine energy to this show. And so to follow up with that, I decided to decide. I decided to. You decided to decide. <laughs> the <laughs> you decision. You are the decider, dude. <laughs> I did the, the decision to um, 
I decided that I would just embrace it. And so, therefore, this week's theme is Ladies' Night. Bring me films about ladies, perhaps by ladies. Both things were accomplished. These films. Low bar. De- <laughs> I mean, we have a lot to talk about, but definitely Ladies' Night films. Maybe one I would put like a comma in between ladies and night, but we'll talk about that. Oh, we will. Yeah. Well, uh, as is customary, uh, the earlier film gets uh, the introduction first. So, uh, Andy, why don't you tell us about. Uh, the deep fried ladies' night you brought. Well, I um, was sort of like trying to figure out how I was gonna um, enter. You know, I was looking for my angle for this week because, you know, it's a it's a topic like our topic last week, and you know, sometimes in previous weeks we've had very like you know specific kind of topics that are looking you know. There's, there's, there's sometimes very few options uh, and, and few sort of ways to, to sort of work, you know, work with it. But, but this was very open, wide open. Uh, and so I was just really trying to figure out my angle of, of entry. And, um, you know, I was thinking like ladies night and, and my first instinct was to kind of go with like the idea of a ladies night and like a, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, a chick flick, you know, the thing that, that maybe my girlfriend and her girlfriends would get together and watch. And I, I asked her, you know, like, Hey, you know, ladies night's the topic. What kind of stuff would you watch? And every movie she rattled off, <clears throat> I was like, no, no, no. This <laughs> is like not interested, you know? And that's nothing against chick flicks and that's nothing against, you know, whatever. Maybe it's really just uh, my girlfriend's particular tastes that just weren't really doing it for me for this week. And then I just took a step back and I just thought, ladies' night. And it suddenly popped into my head a movie that, for the most part, takes place. At night, at least certainly the most dramatic moments of the film seem to take place at night. And uh, a film that features a slew of ladies, uh, hot-blooded ladies. And that film is from 1964, directed by Robert Aldrich. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. This is a film that stars the Grand Dame herself, Betty Davis as Charlotte Hollis, a now fading former Southern Belle, a debutante. Uh, In the opening of the film, we get this sort of prologue where uh, a murder takes place. Uh, We learn that Charlotte has plans to, to run away with John Mayhew, played by a very young Bruce Dern, and Probably one of his first yeah, movies. Love to see it. Oh, yeah. Very young. I mean, this is 1964, Bruce Dern. And then you're like, holy fuck, that guy was around forever, right? But anyway, they're planning to run off together, and he's married, you know, and they're going to elope. But Charlotte's father, 
played by Victor Buono, guest starring. The big boy. The big boy himself, Victor Buono. Uh, Daddy, Big Sam Hollis. He finds out about this plan for elopement, and the prologue, you know, is basically this showdown where he's like, over my god dead, you know, over, over my dead body, you're gonna run off with my daughter, my sweet Charlotte. I should kill your ass. That's what I should do. And we then get this great big party, this huge Prohibition-era party. I should point out as well, the prologue takes place in 1927. Well, at the party, uh, uh, Bruce Dern gets his hand chopped off and his head chopped off by someone wielding a massive meat cleaver. We, of course, do not know who, but the implication is there that this was Charlotte's work. That Charlotte after being told by John that he's not going to elope with her, snapped and had a a moment of of sort of psychotic rage and and brutally murdered the guy. This is all just in the prologue of the film. We then get a time jump to 1964, the year the film takes place. Charlotte now is a shut-in, a very kind of Miss Haversham-like figure in the rotting, former, glorious plantation of the Hollis family. And the opening of the film then sort of shifts into this this kind of, um, well, you know, this psychodrama about Charlotte. Uh, Did she do it? There's still mystery all these years later. But now this, this, uh, this very fragile sort of existence that Charlotte has is thrown into disarray by the plans of uh, the state of Louisiana to basically bulldoze the plantation, eminent domain, and and build a road and a bridge over the property. Uh, the arrival of, of Charlotte's cousin uh, just makes matters better slash worse, which we will definitely get into. And yeah, I mean, there's just going to be so much to, to cover here. But uh, yeah, it is a campy, southern gothic, uh, uh, just bitch fest 100% as uh, Charlotte and Miriam played by Olivia de Havilland have a sort of battle of wills what's going to happen will Charlotte move on did Charlotte do it Uh, also is she going nuts all these questions and more will be answered Um, for those who don't know this film followed the 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 huge success of uh, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane from 1962. Robert Aldrich, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford. That that film, I think a lot more people know about than Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte. Or at least I should say Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte has, has long been overshadowed, in my opinion, by Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Uh, following the success... Aldrich and Associates, or Associates and Aldrich, decided, like, that was great, let's do it again. So they tried to get the whole band back together, and for the most part, they did. Same screenwriters, same uh, writer from the original source material, same cinematographer, same everybody. And in fact, as they began, they even had Joan Crawford on board to to ride that uh, that you know success and controversy of their first 
successful pairing. However, uh, I think after like only a week or two, Joan Crawford walked. You know, there's mixed stories as to why people have often cited the feud between the two of them. Uh, I think Joan Crawford said she was sick. She had come down with some sort of, you know, illness, some respiratory illness and, and had to take off and they had to shoot the film. So they moved on without her and she was replaced by Olivia de Havilland. Um, man, in, in that regard, it's for those who have seen whatever happened to Baby Jane, it's a very similar formula, a very similar vibe. It is campy. It is wild. It's gaudy. And Betty Davis is just shrieking her head off throughout the film. It's, I think, to me, a lot of fun. And I think I enjoy this one a lot more than whatever happened to Baby Jane. So that's the film that I brought. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Yeah, I was so excited uh, when you, when you, when I got that text that this would be the, the second film because we had talked about what your pick was. Um, but this is one of my mom's favorite films. She loves really? Betty Davis. Yeah, when I was starting to get into movies, um, when my parents started to notice that I was getting into movies beyond what was the average fair in the in the mid to late 90s I started watching older films and like really older films um and so my uncle showed me all the uh all the silent comedies and early sound comedies um and I was getting really into 30s horror uh when I was like eight and nine and and so my mom and I watched both of these movies uh I mean, haven't seen them since, but very exciting to revisit. Well, yeah, we will, we will, we will, we will revisit it for sure tonight. We should probably bring out Marsh's film. Speaking <laughs> well, we of, got two films to talk speaking about. of, what did you bring? <laughs> well, um, geez, yeah, uh, I knew I wanted to to bring a film directed by a, a woman. That was sort of my starting point. But then from there, where do you go? You know, a lot of options. And uh, my starting point then was, you know, I knew, Sherman, that you would be here. And uh, one of the things that, that you and I like to do uh, in our life uh, as, as friends uh, is what we call Denzel studies, you know, um, not a woman, but Stenzel Washington. And uh, you and I, uh, I mean, who isn't, you know, besides Armand White, uh, a huge fan of Denzel Washington. Uh, and and you and I love jamming on on his career and, and all that. And so I was circling around some, some options, you know, mostly like 80s, 90s stuff. Uh, and then I realized, you know, I've never seen uh, this particular Denzel movie. And it seemed, uh, like it would be, you know, somewhere, uh, in the realm of, of ladies night or qualifying as such. But, uh, boy, I, you know, it, a lot of things were unexpected, uh, about it, even for me, you know, I see on the cover, it's like Denzel and a romance, you know, let's go. Uh, but we get a whole lot more than that. Um, and so, yeah, the film I picked is Mississippi Masala from 1991, directed by Mira Nair and written by her then screenwriting partner, Suni Taraporavela. Um, this film is uh, sort of a historical epic 
uh, slash <laughs> romance uh, film, in a sense. Um, so where to begin? Well, where the film opens uh, in Kampala, Uganda, 1972, in Idi means Uganda, where uh, 80,000 Indians are being expelled from the country due to a new governmental policy. Uh, and this includes the sort of family that is the, the center of the film, uh, the father Jay, the mother Kinu, and the daughter, who is really kind of the main character of the movie, Mina. Uh, and so in, you know, just like Charlotte, we get a lengthy prologue uh, in this movie giving us this historical backdrop only then to flash us to uh, Mississippi 1991, where this family is now living uh, the motel life in Greenwood, Mississippi in the Deep South. So also like Charlotte, uh, we're in the American South for, for both of these movies. Uh, and what follows is... Um, sort of comedy of manners and a social issue movie and this, yes, beautiful, romantic... Star-crossed uh, lovers. Yes, yeah, star-crossed lovers situation, right? Because ultimately, of course, uh, Mina, as played by Sarita Chowdhury, is going to fall in love with Denzel uh, and vice versa. And Denzel uh, is playing Demetrius Williams, a.k.a. D-Money, uh, and he is a successful businessman who operates his own carpet cleaning service in Greenwood. Uh, and... We get to meet his family and her family, and as they navigate this taboo situation, uh, of course, things are going to get too spicy, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, the masala, you know? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, <laughs> again, I sort of just picked this being like, yeah, Miranair, uh, Denzel, let's go. And, and, you know, again, we get a whole lot more than that, you know? Uh, they're just one element of the film. But... Um, it was my first time seeing it, um, which is also why I wanted to, you know, bring it. I just hadn't seen it. And, uh, you know, this falls in, like, the end of Denzel phase one, you know? Yeah. So that's really interesting. It's, like, right before he did uh, Malcolm and then would start being in fucking Grish Glory. Grisham shit, <clears throat> you know? Yeah, so um, it's that, like, late, early Denzel, you know, where he's still really skinny but just so charismatic. But, uh, yeah, it's a very vibrant, very lively movie. Um, I think it's worth pointing out... Um, you know, I've only seen Monsoon Wedding, the Miranair film, which I saw in college. Um, but she comes from, you know, she has a background in theater and also in documentary. Um, and I think that, I think, plays into, you know, sort of how the film feels. Um, especially she came from, like, Verite. So she has a sort of, like, sociological interest uh, in cinema, like people's rituals and, and family and, and all these sort of dividing lines that she's going to set up in this film to be crossed um, sort of comes from that documentary background. Um, yeah, anyway, we'll, we'll, certainly, we'll certainly get into it, you know? Um, that's Mississippi Masala. Yeah. Thank you both. They were, uh, they were both really fun movies to get through. Uh, that was my first time with Mississippi Masala, and I was really taken by it. Um, there's a lot going on. There's so much charm. Um, the ways in which it contrasted 
to Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte (laughs) (laughs) in terms especially of recalibrating my own personal understanding of what I had intended with Ladies Night (laughs) was a journey unto itself. Um, Because I was going into it thinking, well, ideally... It's not a movie, you know, focused on romance, or if it is, the romance is is tangential or broader in terms of who I would have expected to be the central ladies. And, you know, Mississippi Masala has this very distinct central romance, but it's not just about them. It's about all of these other characters, mm-hmm. all these other stories. Yeah. Um, and and so I thought it, you know, met the topic in a really interesting way. <laughs> well, we're we're glad to hear that, you know. I mean, I think it's like uh as Marsh put it in his intro, it's like um yeah, it's 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 a movie that on its surface, you know, and I think if you just probably read the description of it, you would see it as just this like, oh, it's a romantic comedy, uh about, you know, two people from from different walks of life, different races, different ethnic groups, different backgrounds, different countries. Uh, oh, it's going to be this sort of, oh, look how different these cultures are. Look at the friction. But, oh, look at how similar they are too, right? And, and there is that there for oh, yeah. sure. But, like, it is uh, so much more and, you know, kind of, reminding me a lot of uh, a film we just talked about peck on the cheek in in that it is so multifaceted there are so many different um sort of perspectives that are going to play a part in looking at this romance and not just this romance but life in Mississippi life in America life in Uganda life in Africa you know it's it's a journey into identity more than it is just about will they won't they get together you know they're they're the like the spine right but but the 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 marvelous things about this film are everything that's built on top of that spine yeah i mean it would probably not be uh, a surprise to either of you uh, to hear that you know uh, when Mira Neres talked about her approach to filmmaking she explicitly rejects the sort of quote you know western greek model of tragedy you know she's not interested in that uh she has a much more um you know eastern approach right she's also like obsessed with yoga and balance and shit you know so um there's that element of like you know she's not conceiving of it yeah as like a greek tragedy but as uh this this balance of light and dark right and i think that is what the movie is, this juggling of these different tones, because so much of the film is just so funny and colorful and full. There's a big ensemble cast, you know, and, and it's, it's fantastic. And then, right. It's also like every step of the way, there's all these other details about how life sucks and how it's hard. And and then the, the racism and, and everything else that's swirling around, uh, in this community, um, yeah, it's a it's an overwhelming experience, certainly. Well, 
on that note, right, then it's interesting to to sort of use those specific terms that, you know, she's not interested in sort of Greek tragedy because our other film, yeah. Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, is basically a Greek tragedy. I yeah. mean, it's basically Medea, you know, it's it's riffing on that idea of of a a tragic figure a, a downfall, an epic downfall of sorts, uh, a sort of cathartic, tragic story, right? That it's going to build to this, this release, this big, bloody, awful, psychological release of sorts. Yeah, and it's not like formulaic, but it is structured very heavily. It's classically constructed and it's like... I mean, the cinematography, it's all these little pieces. It's so specific. It's so exacting. The light, the camera positioning. Um, and so not that there is not purpose in Mississippi Masala, but it's it's totally opposite. It's, it's a, the, the camera is like, is like servicing the reality in Mississippi Masala in most well, situations. Well, I guess in that, in that sense, too, just sort of riffing on on that idea of, like, balance. And if you said, as you've said now, like, yoga, and I'm just sort of, like, my brain's just spinning now thinking about this. It's interesting in that film, in, in Mississippi Masala, how there are, you know, it seems for, like, one scene to the next, it is this very, like, like, um, just like a constant sort of like duet back and forth between cultures, between characters. And, and we'll see, you know, uh, something play out with, with Mina and her family. And then the very next scene will basically be more or less the same events, but from the perspective of, of, you know, Demetrius and his family. And, and we sort of just bounce back and forth. We're constantly sort of swaying. Uh, it's like a swing almost, you know, of, of events, but it is very in that sense, like ordered and you, you find an equilibrium that is even being explicitly referenced by characters throughout as they learn things about themselves and about each other and their differences where, again, in Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, the essence of the film is to make you feel, like, unbalanced at all times, that you are, like Charlotte, losing your fucking mind from one scene to the next. You don't know what to believe, who to trust, who to believe in, right? Where to put your faith in in reality, in sanity. It's a very, like, disordered mental experience and and again like you said through through the cinematography through the lighting through the editing but certainly also like through the characters through the performances and particularly like i would say through betty davis i mean just absolutely chewing the scenery and 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 really just you know trying to capture that same sort of magic from whatever happened to baby jane i mean this launched I guess whatever Baby Jane like launched, right? A whole new sort of subgenre of drama or like psychological horror known as the the psycho biddy, right? The old lady losing her mind and and you know, did she kill people or not, right? That sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's like a very, you know, it's a very, very like manic depressive kind of experience. It's a very like bipolar experience in the film. Yeah. 
she was uh, in when Joan Crawford was involved in the production, Betty Davis was playing the cousin. And uh, when she dropped out, they she took the other role. Right. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting to think about that because she is so perfect for this role. And I think right off the bat, it feels hammy because it's so much. It's so in your face. That first scene where she's like blowing the shotgun at the at the bulldozer when and at she's the construction guys. Uh, George Young George Kennedy, <laughs> who's the foreman of the construction crew. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, not just berating, but yeah. shooting at them as well. <laughs> Opening that, yeah, <laughs> taking to say, to say nothing of Chekhov's flower pot, but we can uh, <laughs> right, yeah, we can you know, yeah, we'll get to that. But um, as it develops, and very quickly, I felt. Um, there's nuance there, and you start to guess as an audience member uh, or wonder what did happen. Uh, obviously, as it unfolds, as the story unfolds, there's more information divulged, but um, there's a lot going on in that performance. <laughs> uh, but not, not to discount the other ladies. Uh, I particular, uh, I found Agnes Moorhead to be really phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Another over-the-top performance, but, I mean, she's always killing it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's, a, I mean, it's, a, it's a stacked cast. I mean, we didn't even get to everybody that's in the film, but, but yeah, you, you have Agnes Moorhead as Velma, uh, the, seemingly the only person really left in Charlotte's Corner, her long-serving, long-suffering, I guess, maid or, yeah, you and know, much more than that. And much, you know, and much more than that as well. If, if what I inferred is true, you know, <laughs> yeah. Agnes is working overtime to convey, uh, you know, some thoughts she has, I think. Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there is an undercurrent of psychosexual tension just brimming in a lot of the interactions throughout this, especially for most of the Moore. characters. Yeah. 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 But I mean, again, also... Joseph Cotton, yeah. who's in there as Dr. Drew, a longtime family friend, this this sort of fading gigolo of yeah. sorts, right? That just kind of hangs out and drinks all yeah. of Charlotte's hangs booze. Hangs out slurring, you know? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. Absolutely no point in you getting so upset the way you did this morning. Anyone who knew you less well than I do might be forgiven for thinking you had a persecution complex yes dr drew i mean i loved uh, there's a there's a point at the film where they make an explicit reference to citizen kane you know when the journalist comes out of the room uh the shitty tabloid journalist not willis or wills or whatever uh, he goes hi mr blake thanks for the use of the hall uh which of course is a classic kane line and Obviously, you know, uh, we have Joseph Cotton and Agnes Moorhead, and I believe Wesley Addy may have been uh, part of the, the uh, Mercury players, maybe not in film, but in, in theater. Um, and I know Aldrich started at RKO, so, like, part of that is he was there. You know, he was an AD for Wells in the 40s. I think maybe I'm, like, the stranger uh, and maybe something else. So there's deep ties, you know, for, for Aldrich to RKO, and he's bringing them all in. I mean, 
they're amazing. And obviously we have Mary Astor as well in her final screen role. And I was thinking, you know, she's like dying in this movie. I'm like, damn, did she like die? You know, her final, she lived another 20 years, you know, (laughs) she just retired. (laughs) I think she was retired and then like came back. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, that's part of the magic, uh, that Aldrich sort of, you know, pulled off with, whatever happened to baby Jane in, in more or less like resurrecting the careers of a lot of like classic Hollywood people who by the, the early and mid sixties were, were, you know, well past their prime and were, were sort of just uh, fading memories of like Hollywood would glamor. And, and that's like what, you know, was so brilliant about the conception of these films of specifically like using Betty Davis and Joan Crawford in the first one, and now in this case, Betty Davis, Olivia de Havilland, Moorhead, and and Cotton, and and basically taking all these people whose faces show like the lines, the cracks, the wrinkles of being like ground into powder by the classical Hollywood studio yeah. system, and and now here in the '60s showing. Like the psychological damage, the 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 stunted development, if you will, even of just what what would happen to a person living in fantasy for so long, and now finding all of that gone, right? That- I mean, yeah, and extend that to Aldrich's personal life as well, being from one of like the richest and most powerful families in American history, you know, the Aldrich slash Rockefellers. Imagine the kinds of like explosions and decays that he saw in Hollywood and in just his family. I mean, oh, yeah. I can't even begin to think of the eccentrics that were in like the Aldrich of Rhode Island family. Oh, sure. And I, I think that's why I always sort of gravitated to this one a little bit more. I guess just found things in this one a little bit more interesting than whatever happened to baby Jane, which is an amazing movie. I love it. You know, it's great. But, but this specifically in that context for Aldrich that you're, you're outlining of like knowing his background, knowing that he was, you know, suppose he was being groomed from an early age to just be another like rich Republican piece of shit in these rich Republican shitty families that have run America for so long and that he rejected it. Basically he walked away from it and like his betrayal was like, I want to go to Hollywood and make leftist pictures or whatever. Right. But like there's that much more of like a, a, a critique of of that, of just wealth, of money, of legacy in this one. Obviously, whatever happened to Baby Jane is riffing on like Hollywood specifically, but this has so much more like family shit in there and old money shit. You know, Hollywood, relatively speaking, is new money. This is about old money. Yeah, this is like proto Grey Gardens shit. Yeah. You know, it's like Southern Grey Gardens, you know? Like, Absolutely. And, and it's amazing, you know, comparing these films because the. <laughs> The images of of Sweet Charlotte, you know, they're like they're like a void, you know, and so much of the film is like absence and off screen sound, you know, especially because there's like an epic gaslighting element of the movie, you know, and we're sort of, you know, we know nothing like you know Charlotte, so 
but it's really like it's stark, you know, these cutouts, these like chiaroscuro cutouts and voids, you know, whereas Mississippi Masala is like, you know, every every image is a stew. Yeah. Uh, there's multiple people in it. There's movement, you know, there's staging, there's there's life brimming out of every corner. And yeah. colors brimming out of every yeah. corner. Warmth. Uh yeah. Warmth and and like that's it, you know, and such a cold like Again, also like the the white family, you know, like the mm-hmm. old plantation family yeah. uh, here now in the, the, you know, locked up in a tomb or whatever. I mean, it's, there's like five characters in the movie and it's only anyone that comes to this house, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're both about home and, and, and yeah. where you come from. One about a family displaced uh, from their home for 20 years, 30 years. Um, and uh, another about people confined to a home or for yeah. the most part unable to leave or unwilling to leave. Yeah, she has all the money in the world, by the way. They bring that up several times. Because oh, yeah. that's, again, I think another like needle point for Aldrich. It's yeah. like, yeah, this, this person's problems are far, they're so beyond material. Well, you know? yeah. the idea that hit me like a sledgehammer um, and was, to me, part of the nuance of her performance... Um, is when I forget which character mentions it, but when it's revealed to the audience, spoiler, so the the uh, cousin who comes in to care for Charlotte um, turns out to, later in life, when the murder initially happened, be responsible for the murder, more responsible than Charlotte was, um, and in fact knew who did it and covered it up and proceeded to make Charlotte believe that she or her father had committed this murder all these years and is now returning to the home not to actually care for Charlotte, but to enforce this this gaslight, this this fiction that she is crazy and re- is responsible for the murder so that she can inherit all of her wealth for herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, She's there to loot. Yeah. And the idea, the, the idea is brought up that like, imagine the life she could have lived with this money. If only this had never happened. If only she knew the truth. And, and uh, as soon as that like was uttered, I was thinking about that and it was kind of like wrecking me. But then at the end of the movie, when she gets into the car and and the investigator gives her the letter that reveals the truth to her. I think, it, uh, like a true legend, she allows that reality to pass by her well, eyes in a moment. I would say this, you know, I know that some people say that, that that idea is, you know, put forward. But, of course, that idea is put forward by the people who don't have the money, right? And I would argue, from Aldridge's perspective, this is the only way it was ever going to go. For <laughs> sure, potentially. Not that I, I mean, mean, like, from 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 my view, it's like he he's he's riffing on this idea that, like, you know, this is this is what happens to these kinds of dynasties and to people who have so much money that money is meaningless to them. It doesn't mean anything. Like, you can have. I think from his perspective, so much goddamn money that you cannot spend it, right? That that there's no way to spend it. There's nothing to do with it. I mean, 
this rot, this decay. I mean, you sit there and you're like, oh, wow, she looks like she's on hard times. But the point is that she's not on hard times. It's just like, I have money. Who gives a fuck? Money doesn't mean anything to me. You know, what matters is how people perceive me more than anything. And even then, it's sort of like, well, I don't even give a shit because if I don't like how people perceive me, I'll just stay in my fucking mansion or whatever. I can stay in my fortress that I have. You know, I think, again, it's like he's he's sort of saying, yeah, I mean, he's really riffing on, like, I, I just kept thinking about, like, yeah, like, white southern landowners and, like, the South and how the South, certainly after the Civil War then, like, it just was basically, like, this, like, frozen-in-time kind of situation for so many of these families. And, you know, I just kept thinking about all the scenes where there's characters at, at all hours of the day just kind of sitting around having drinks or whatever, fanning themselves in suits and just kind of being like, boy another day, you know, and nothing ever seems to fucking happen except for, of course, yeah, a murder that took place 30 fucking years ago that no one can stop talking about, you know, because nothing else happens in their fucking lives because they don't work, they don't do anything, you know, like, and again, contrasting a very different perspective, like an immigrant's perspective of America, it's like everyone in Mississippi Masala even when we see that they have to toil and they have to bust their ass and they have to work until they fucking die, their lives are so much more enriched and so much more filled with, with emotion and with affection and with thoughts about anything, you know, in this world. Like you said, like rituals and culture, culture and weddings, you know, it's just like, it's so incredibly warm. What's amazing in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is, you know, this is fucking Louisiana in the middle of, I would assume, just the goddamn summer or something like that. And this movie, I like shiver when I watch this movie. It's so fucking cold. And they filmed in Louisiana. I mean, they filmed, for the most part, I think, on location. I mean, like... Exteriors, yeah. Yeah, certainly like a whole chunk of it, you know? Like, they're there. And man... This movie is ice fucking cold. Yeah. Yeah. Thinking about, you know, Mina and Demetrius, you know, in, in contrast then is, is interesting because like they are in a sense, uh, defined, you know, they're not defined by it, but like, uh, denial of opportunity, um, is very much what has shaped them. Right. You know, whereas obviously Charlotte, uh, you know, other than this shocking, horrible thing, you know, they cut Bruce Dern's head off. Uh, and she went, you know, she's basically like in arrested development, right? Yeah. Just like forever, this teenager who's like, everyone thinks I murdered this person. Uh, and justifiably so, you know, but uh, both Mina and Demetrius like didn't go to college because of their family situations, right? Um, and then seeing what they make of that, right? Where he's got the the prosperous carpet business. Uh, and Mina, she's 24 and working at the motel that they all live in. But she, you know, is very adamant that, like, she, she's totally fine with that. I mean, yeah. she, she maybe is or isn't or whatever. Maybe she's just saying that. But, like, she's not, you know? She's there. She's happy to be there. She's happy to work, you know? Um yeah, it's just interesting, you know, mm -hmm. it's just <laughs> yeah. such different. Yeah, whereas, like, she is 
contrasted very much with her father, who is he's like the Charlotte. Charlotte. He's the Charlotte of the of the whole like Indian motel community. Yeah, stuck in the past, yeah. like hung up on a grievance, and certainly a very legitimate, a very legitimate grievance. Yeah. I'm not trying to like totally. marginalize it in any way, but like he's also in in sort of an arrested development. Yes, like he. We learn like he spends his time. Uh, you know, in the gossip of the town, not, you know, getting out there and becoming a big breadwinner for his family, but writing letter after letter to the Ugandan government protesting the seizure of his property when, you know, Idi Amin expelled all the Asians from 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 the country, right? And and it seems like for him, that's all he can 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 sort of focus on. And and that even becomes like a part of they're in this question of like, you know, development or advancement, right? Like, you know, he even at a certain point is like, well, you know, you could go to college. And she says to him, you know what? I'll go to college when you win your case, when you win your lawsuit against the Ugandan government. And there's this kind of like knowing very subtle kind of smirk that even the father exchanged with her where I think he kind of goes like, yeah, like maybe this is a pipe dream and, and maybe it's fine that these are pipe dreams, you know, because yeah, we are good. We're together. We're here. And it's this, this moment again, of just sort of being like, okay, well, sure. We can only have our fantasies, but we got to run the, the motel. We got to run the liquor store, you know, like, we're fine. We're good. We're not starving. You know, we're not being kicked out of this country the way we were before. So yeah, it's, it's sort of interesting connection, I guess, between the two films in that sense. Yeah. I mean, it's an important point. You mentioned it earlier that both of these films, uh, begin with these prolonged, uh, and significant formative memories for the central characters. Um, the murder in in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte and the expulsion from Uganda, which is really interesting because both in both cases, the memories linger and evolve with the characters as the films progress. Uh, but especially what kind of surprised me most structurally about Mississippi Masala is how we would go back to uh, not only the father Jay's experience of the events that we see, but also uh, Mina's perspective of it. And then also further back to things we didn't see uh, from Jay's childhood. And, and the characters in both films are haunted by this past in many ways. Absolutely. Right. And because in Mississippi Masala, it has like, this double, this like doubling effect because Jay's sort of flashbacks are unearthing, you know, his lifelong best friend, Okalo. Um, you know, he feels betrayed by him as a, an Afri, you know, a black African Ugandan who basically was like, look, man, you got to leave, you know, um, feels betrayed about that, right? So uh, when Mina brings, you know, or when, you know, whatever, when the whole dust-up happens uh, between the two communities, right, Jay is especially sensitive, uh, having this, like, profound sort of, like, sense of personal betrayal uh, in addition to, yeah, the lawsuit against the, the government of Uganda for reparations, you know? Um, so, again, it's like, 
you know, then in a kind of like indie film way, it's like he has his own sort of like shit to get over as well, you know. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of like interesting detail, though, because like what the the quote that that Okello says that rings so clearly to him and so importantly to him is. Why should I go? Why should I go? Okello, this is my home. Not an emoji. Africa is for Africans. Black Africans. And the way in which that idea is echoed in the main story and his relationship with his daughter and then Demetrius, um, I thought it was interesting also how Mira's perspective of that affects her adult life. And I took a note the first time she encounters or meets Demetrius, she comes home and then asks her mother about Okello. And it's like, what, whatever happened to Okello? your back. Where did they take you? Did they hurt you? Speak to me, Jay. Where's Okelo? Gone home, I suppose. You want to hear something wild? Uh, I don't think I knew this until I, until today when I was like looking shit up, but uh, Again, this is according to Bruce Dern. Uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane is basically based on Fontaine de Havilland and what happened with Hitchcock. No way. Facts. Wow. So, like, at least the original sort of, like, inspiration for that dynamic of the performing sisters was, was from them. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah, if you believe Bruce Stern, and uh, uh, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? You know, the guy saw it all. Yeah, he he said, yeah, I found, he, I, there's a bit on YouTube you can look up where he's on Gilbert Gottfried, just recalling <laughs> this movie, and he's like, yeah, Betty called her a cunt, you know, like, yeah, he's, he's like, can I swear, can I swear, is this radio? And Gottfried's like, you can swear, you yeah. know, he's like, oh, okay. And she said, you goddamn bitch, you know? <laughs> He just starts going into like a Betty, you know? Like, God, yeah. oh, amazing, man. dude. <laughs> to be so young, Dern, dude. Oh, like, yeah, God. to be to be on that set for three days, you know? Yeah. Right. While all that's going on. Yeah. Because I mean, I think that's funny too. Because I know that De Havilland, I read like something from her, like where where she was sort of. 
she didn't necessarily enjoy the experience of working on this film. And I don't necessarily think it had anything to do with Betty Davis per se. I mean, it might have, but to Haviland, I guess her big holdup was, um, but that she, she was so much into like her type and that she was the good girl. And in this, while she, while she certainly appears for most of the film as the good girl, she is decidedly the worst girl, the bad girl. And that that like rubbed her the wrong way. And that is just so funny. That is to me just such old Hollywood bullshit of yeah. just being like my persona, my type. Like I, I went against type and it was a mistake, you know? Oh yeah. And it's like Betty Davis, it's so clear that, you know, she understood like now who she was supposed to be oh, yeah. in Hollywood with whatever happened to baby Jane. And then by this time, you know, she's like, she's I locked get it. In. Yeah. And like, is just throwing herself fully like into it. I, I but think that's like, dude, that's what's so brilliant about the casting. You know, I dug up the, the Aldrich Bogdanovich interview and Aldrich says that Haviland was, was more brilliant than Crawford ever could have been, uh, especially when they flipped the roles, because as Aldrich put it, you don't know the butler did it with Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> and if Joan Crawford or yeah. Betty Davis stepped out of the car, yeah. the yeah. butler did it. Yeah. You know? And Olivia gives off the complete different impression throughout yeah. a good chunk of the movie. Yeah. If you haven't seen it before, you're going to fall for it because of her image, you yes. know? So, like, to me, it's just brilliant casting. Of course, the actor would object, you know? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, be, but again, it just, like, it feeds into this this quality that the film has uh, for you watching it of just being so unsure of everything you're seeing, of everything you're hearing. I mean, the film in its writing again and through the performances, it, it really starts to make us suspect Agnes Moorhead, the Velma, and again, for this unspoken attraction that might be there for her, quote, loyalty to, uh, to you know, to Charlotte, to sweet Charlotte. So, you know, there's, there's so many instances where you're suddenly looking at, at everybody, but Olivia. Yeah. You're looking at the painting of the dad and going, <laughs> yeah. he did it. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, a vague hint that maybe there is something supernatural taking place here. Like we start to feel fucking nuts in this house. I mean, this is what this house does to people, especially if you spend all your time in it. And we, for the most part, spend all of our time inside that fucking house. Yeah, but I mean, it's a testament to what you said earlier in terms of this very much being a production where the gang was getting back together. I mean, same editor... Same cinematographer, same... Or, yeah, I think so. But and it, they, yeah, he had worked with the cinematographer many times um, and would, conti could, would continue to do so. But, like, there's so much trust there in uh, how how big Betty Davis's performance is and how, um, how much they're able to move the camera around and play with the 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 spaces in the rooms in the in the house the various rooms and how we experience those those spaces while they're for the most part empty uh, or with only one or two people in them um, and it doesn't get stale it doesn't get old no. and it in fact develops and enriches the the text and the dialogue 
It's really exciting. Again, I mean, I, there's there's plenty of other films that do this kind of thing, but but you know, like uh, fucking Aldrich and his cinematographer. I mean, everybody like they they do that amazing thing where you know we get plenty of exteriors of the house and and we see the size of it, but the way they are shooting inside there, it makes the interior of the house seem so uncannily larger than what we perceive the house to be. Like, you know, in our mind, the architecture of the place. Like, once we're inside there, it becomes like an otherworldly, like, environment where it's impossible how big and how deep this house actually is. I mean, there's a couple shots even where, you know, they just got the, the camera, like, basically, it seems like on the ceiling at the very top looking down through this like massive grand staircase and it's just such an insane shot where it's just totally top down and characters are are all the way at the bottom they're not even going up the stairs they're just sort of like talking on that ground floor i mean it it almost becomes like abstract when we we look at it and certainly the lighting is playing a big part the shadows which are like just straight out of german expressionism but now also Ian reflecting and you reminding me, Marsh, about like his time at RKO and the fact that like some of his first experiences as a wide eyed new film employee in Hollywood were probably peeking in on the the bonkers shit that that Orson Welles and and Greg Toland were doing in Citizen Kane and just having people be like, you're not supposed to light it this way. And just people being like, my God, this is fucking amazing. You know, like he was there, dude. He saw the whole thing go down. Yeah. Well, and not only that, but I was like struck by their. It was showing its sixties, like in the 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 frequency of a handheld camera, uh, in the use of snap zooms, uh, and and just the way they were moving around the space. And as far as I know, most of the interiors were sets, but they really took advantage of that and they like heightened it. Um, not even to talk about the crazy hallucination dream sequence, um, you know, what sequences, right? Sure. And what they do with the production design, but yeah, just the lighting, the camera, it's wild. Well, you know, the lighting and the the camera equally impressed me in in both films. And I do want to talk about Ed Lockman's work on Mississippi Masala because uh, it's not just uh, an extremely colorful movie. Um, And I know they went to great pains to like echo the colors of Uganda in Mississippi and Mm -hmm. try and like, again, play with that idea of home and color and all all that. Uh, But the camera work uh, is remarkable. And the stuff they do, because the actors are so good, uh, there are, you know, there's wonderful long takes in, in Aldrich and there's wonderful long takes here, thinking particularly uh, a lot of the courtship stuff between the two, those like romantic leads, they're just these long, steady cam shots that you just get lost in and they're not showy. Uh, you're not like, oh, it's a one or whatever. You're just like lost in the chemistry of the actors. Like when they kiss for the first time, that shot's like five minutes long. Mm-hmm. And then it creeps in on them as yeah. they're, I mean, it's just like 
really remarkable operating um, above all else because they're just like outside. It's beautiful. They're by a river, you know. But uh, that stuff worked for me on like such a high level in terms of how romantic and and, uh, impactful it was, you know. Yeah, it was hot as hell. (laughs) It was very hot, yeah. The I sex mean, scene was pretty hot, oh too. Or even, you know, the, the hottest scene I thought was the phone call scene. But, um, Ooh, yeah. Carl, I was just thinking about you. Thought I'd give you a call. Kind of wishing you were here with me. I was thinking the same. Wanting to be with you. What you got on? T-shirt. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Guess we got a lot in common. Huh? <laughs> in terms of of that, like Lockman also has a history in nonfiction and documentary, and they, I, I saw this thing where he was talking about how they used that uh, that shared background to approach this, and the i the the resonant idea was that. The movement of the camera or any choices of the camera would always be motivated by what the people are doing, which is how you would make a documentary. So, um, yeah, I think that really, I mean, beyond his ability to understand color, like he's been able to over his insane career. Um, yeah, just the way it approaches those tender moments, um, and just lets him happen. Cause when the movie gets zany, gets like away from those like really intimate and quiet moments and gets really big. Um, it doesn't feel like a different movie. It feels like the same movie as, as opposite as the emotions can be. I think that the, the camera and the, the, the cut of Mississippi Masala are again, going back to Marsh's intro and things that, um, you know, the director Nair has said uh, about her interests, like all of it is flowing with the the rhythms of life and the rhythms of the heart. And uh, it feels very like organic, you know, it doesn't feel even in some of the more, quote, like cinematic moments, it doesn't feel mechanical. It doesn't you don't you don't feel the, the construction behind it in the way that you do feel the construction of hush hush sweet charlotte you know you 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 very clearly see the the craftsmanship behind every shot in hush hush sweet charlotte but you know with mississippi masala you are seeing the world. You're seeing the people. You're seeing the cars. You're seeing such good cars. Great yeah. cars, dude. And great car gags. Great car <laughs> yeah. gags. You're seeing the greenery, and you are suddenly reflecting on how much Mississippi looks like Uganda and the river that they're walking along. And you know, you you do see the the connectedness of life on this planet. Whereas again, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, it, it you feel like when you walk in that fucking house, you're stepping onto another planet altogether. Oh, yeah. You've left the lunar module, dude, and you are in uh, total la-la land, for sure. I think there is contrast uh, in Mississippi Masala um, 
uh, and the, the thing I saw with Lachman, he talked about it a little bit in terms of um, the way light plays in Uganda as opposed to the ways that it does in Mississippi um, and the locations that they shoot in. In Uganda, it's very hilly uh, and it's very foggy and there's usually like a diffusion of the light um, fr- from like the the sugarcane farms uh, or the the buildings. Whereas in Mississippi, it's a lot of like really harsh direct light because it's so flat, it's so open. Um, and so the colors are all there. It's so vibrant in either in either case, especially because we're like, we're exploring all of these different diasporas within Mississippi. And so it's not just you know, a singular American aesthetic. It's a lot of these different things. There's one shot out uh, the window of a car when they're going to Biloxi for their romantic getaway of a plantation. And it looked like the one from Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Yes. So oh, yeah, I, was, I noted you know, that, like, yeah. There's a lot of landscape side scroll, sort of, again, documentary style stuff, like when they're leaving Uganda, when they're going through, uh, you know, in Mississippi, we're getting, like, the farm, yeah. the plantation, you know, we're, again, all these different diasporas, these different communities. Uh, and then again, yeah, of course, we're going to get that, that yeah. image from... Betty's house. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot they just didn't light. I mean, a lot was natural light. Um, the um, the club where the club. where oh, that was such a great sequence. Uh, the club. Sorry, where, Harry Patel. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, it was is is he a turkey? <laughs> no, I mean, no, okay, not no. full, but he he gets I, shit on. You feel bad for Harry? No, no. But what I was gonna say is, you know, I I mean, I love that like the wedding sequence. You know, they go to the wedding, and it's it's again talking about ritual. It's this very traditional uh, Indian wedding that they're all attending, and there's there's you know quite a bit of hubbub between the mother and the daughter about her slippers and is she wearing the proper ones? And she's like, well, I'm not the one getting married, but there's still like proper dress the sari the appearance you know everything and and for the most part you go to the wedding and everybody's in you know traditional indian clothing except for harry patel who shows up in a tux looking like james bond that's what i was thinking i didn't go i went bond dude because harry patel too he's like smoking and he's it's implied you know he is like you know the, the, the attraction yeah. there too is that yeah for her it's that he's kind of like you want to get out of this stupid wedding you want to go somewhere cool I'm gonna take you to the leopard lounge yeah. and they go to the leopard lounge and she's at first like hey maybe Harry's a cool dude like this is more what I'm into and she ditches her clothes she puts on you know western more you know more traditionally western clothing yeah. and they go to the leopard lounge and he's still in he's the tux. still in his tux that's <laughs> the best part I know I love it he's in the tux but no I didn't see him as a derky you know I just was like Fair enough. the minute she saw Denzel in the club it was like he he even knew it he's like yeah. I'm out of here You're, like I'm done yeah. I'm in a tux I got the no, lounge, I got no chance <laughs> yeah uh, but so when Lachman walked into the club, which was a real place, 
uh, he was like, oh, great, let's just do this. And he left the lighting as, with all those, like, string bulbs as it was. He just replaced bulbs to, to make it bright enough. Oh, amazing. Or just supplemented what was already there. I got to say, too, since just we're, we're on the subject and we were kind of talking about, you know, the tux and, and what people were wearing, um, you know, when we did our 100th episode and we had our category I for going best fits, yeah. like, yeah. this movie is now Holy shit. on my list. I mean, look, I'll, I'll be honest. Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte. Also has some pretty interesting fits as well. I mean, I'm a sucker yeah. for a for a nice seersucker suit. Oh yeah. And I mean, of course, all of, like the baby doll debutante dresses that that you know Betty Davis. She's in a different one every fucking scene. It's amazing. But man, the fits in Mississippi Masala yeah. are Next level. impeccable. Yeah, and specifically Dude, one guy, <laughs> my favorite guy, and I'm Tyrone. sure you guys know, not Tyrone. Not Tyrone. Oh, Tyrone's got some good good fits. Charles S. Dutton in an early role for him. Dexter. But Tico no, Wells. No, no, no. I mean, Dexter's oh, funny. Pontiac? I mean, Dexter's his own kind of thing. Dexter is is Demetrius's younger brother, and they have this amusing moment when they first, you know, <laughs> sort of interact. And Dexter, it's kind of, we discover, like, he kind of wants to be, like, a cool hip-hop guy. So he's wearing, like, the Flavor Flav, like, big clock necklace. And Denzel's, like, a working man. He's got his working man garb on. He's kind of, like, to his brother, like, hey, grow up. And I just love it. He just yanks it off and just fucking throws. Well, it's not even on a chain. It's just on a string. Yeah, yeah. But then the next scene, you know, after he lost the big clock, did you notice? He's now wearing just a stopwatch. (laughs) like like he broke the big clock and now i can only afford like a stopwatch now so now he's wearing a a much smaller clock around his neck it was just like he's such a dork that's what's i think implied there but no i don't remember the character's name but it's one of just the indian dudes the three stooges yeah the three stooges guys but the guy guy that has like the bouffant yeah and he's wearing like a green shark skin suit and he's got the cigarette holder like oh that guy that guy that's my favorite. Not guy. the guy with the mustache and the the upturned hat. No, I mean they're all cool, but the, <laughs> the the dude with the cigarette holder and like the shark skin suits was was my guy with the big the big hair. That yeah. was my dude for sure. Those guys uh, when they were in vacation mode, they were next level. Oh man! Real quick shout out to Tico Wells. That's a five heartbeats alert, dude. Absolutely, choir boy, dude. <laughs> choir boy yeah uh the scene where i mean yeah it god i i did really really feel bad for you know uh mina and demetrius because uh you know they go and have a, you know weekend at the beach or whatever just a day at the beach you know and they get a hotel the whole thing goes down we see it, it's very sensual uh but you know while they're riding the carnival rides you know a couple of the guys from the motel are uh playing mini golf you know and they they notice the taboo situation going on which uh of course the next day results in one of them uh who by the way is the guy that got married and can't get any sex at home uh barges into uh their motel you know and and starts to fight with denzel they all end up at the police station uh and it's this yeah i mean it has very very serious consequences in both communities uh even though it is a very funny comical uh sequence that's really just like nothing you know yeah well it shifts very quickly from from being something like dramatic to something comedic to something again very dramatic 
Um, but but again, a connection between the two films is, you know, the good old gossip mill, the good old yeah. rumor mill, and both films like feature that just the 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 people of the community talking about the central characters spinning tales spinning yarns and that's certainly what would leads to the the you know yes the, the the biggest sort of like emotional climax of of mississippi masala is then the community uh sort of pulling them apart the community working against this this perceived, I guess, like bit of like race betrayal that both groups sort of latch on to, you know, well, we can't have a black man and an Indian woman together. Like that's inappropriate. But what's interesting again is the tapestry for, uh, for the director is, is, you know, we see not just these two communities, but we see like a, a, a much larger community, including like how whites are perceiving all of this. The bank manager. The bank manager, you know, and, and not all negatively. Uh, you know, there's like this other woman that, you know, and again, I know that there's some, some, some definite racism involved here, but there's like this white woman that feels like very proud of, of as she claims, like, getting uh, Denzel's character the loan, you know, that basically she made him what she is. And there is this kind of racist sort of like, oh, he's my pet black man that I've elevated, you know, like, but it's, it's, we see a lot of different like levels and layers of racism. That's what really, I think, again, for me, it's like beyond the romantic comedy. This is a film that has a very nuanced, very mature exploration of like hierarchies of racism, especially in the American South, but also like with a, a, an international perspective that that whites in America might take for granted, you know, that, that even within the Indian community, we hear things about, oh, light skin versus dark skin, you know, there's, there's a lot of, of sort of, you know, depictions of, of varying degrees of racism within this film and how everyone sort of confronts it, you know, and, and that's really the, the, the moment when I think, you know, uh, Mina's dad starts to kind of like rethink things, you know, when Denzel is basically like, dude, like... I don't want her to go through the same struggle as I did. Struggle? Str Look, I'm a black man born and raised in Mississippi. Ain't a damn thing you can tell me about struggle. What do you know about my... No, I know. I know. I know you and your folks can come down here from God knows where and be about as black as the ace of spades, and as soon as you get here, you start acting white and treating us like we your doormats. I know that you and your daughter ain't but a few shades from this right here. That I know. And again, the, the nuance for him of being, you know, the, the, for me and his dad, like the, the, the person who was treated with this sort of like racist policy by Idi Amin of throwing out Indians, you know? And it's sort of like this forest for the trees kind of moment of just being like, oh yeah, shit. But which is, also very humorously done when you have like the the hotel like manager or whatever who has to sit down with Denzel and Charles S. Dutton and is like, you know, all us people of color must stick together. That's right. Cause you and your brothers, y'all done all right by us. And me and my brothers, we're gonna do show enough all right by y'all. United we stand. United we fought. 
<laughs> That's right. Right on, brother. Yeah. <laughs> Power to the people. Brother, brother. Power to the people. Yes. And it's all because they don't want to have a lawsuit over the car accident that <laughs> happens at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> over a minor fucking fender bender, dude. Yeah. Yeah. I love his approach, you know. Your people are very good at sports, no? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kareem Abdul Jabbar. Uh Hector Camacho. And he's like, uh, uh, he's, you know. He's Puerto Rican. Well, at first Denzel's like, yeah, he's Mexican. And then Charles says, actually, he's Puerto Rican. You know, it's like again, this like sort of nuanced portrayal of how like racism and and you know i don't want to say like bigotry but like prejudice right you know color the 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 seeing of color it's in all communities it's really well yeah because exploring. a few scenes earlier charles s dutton is like uh hitting on mina at the club Always. and is like are you mexican <laughs> mm-hmm. he, oh my god he was cracking me up yeah. I mean the, again you know just as Charlotte has like a really stacked cast Mississippi Masala like his family with Joe Seneca I mean like hot off crossroads Walter Hill baby mm-hmm. check it out but uh, they're, they're all so perfect and I love like the comic moments that come from what's kind of like the central joke of the movie which is uh, she has never been to India, and of course, Denzel's never been to Africa, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, there's they joke about that. This you know this displacement and migration histories. You know, I mean, it's uh, it's fun stuff. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, because that's the thing. Uh, you know, her dad Jay. I mean, he sees himself as African. Yeah, he doesn't see himself as Indian. I think he even explicitly says, yeah. I see myself as African first, as Ugandan first, and Indian second. Which, again, from the outside, from anyone perceiving this, to see a very clearly Indian man saying, I'm African, and on a certain level, talking to blacks in the American South, having more ties to Africa directly than than they do oh, yeah. is I think there's also some tension that gets explored there. You well, because they're like, uh, yeah, why are there Indians in Africa? And it's like, wow, the, you know, the British built the railways. And uh, they're like, wait, so they, the Indians were like the slaves, you know? And then they're all like, whoa, you know? Ah, it's like, a little uh, it's, it's kind of different, but not really, you know, again, but the film is exploring those the you know the areas in between right and certainly nothing is black and white um in this film at all and that's like part of the joy of it that's part of the humor and that's also part of like the serious social critique uh that's going on as well yeah you know this film i feel like um for me my understanding of it you know, because I hadn't seen it before this week, but it was a movie that I'd, I'd seen referenced before and I'd, I'd heard about and I'd read about. And to my understanding, you know, this was a film that that was a big sort of forerunner for a lot of, you know, in, in the same way that like whatever happened to Baby Jane kind of launched now this sort of subgenre of like psycho biddies and like, hey, let's get... Let's get old ladies from Hollywood and 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 let them go nuts, you know. Like I feel like Mississippi Masala, from my understanding, was a film that that kind of created this sort of like subgenre that you would see replicated in a lot of like indie dramedies of let's take these distinct ethnic groups 
and put them together in a room and let's look at their foibles and look at the way that they're different, but let's also look at how they're similar. And we've seen so many like shittier versions of just that basic, again, like spine or skeleton of a romantic comedy, but with a very like particular focus on ethnic identity, you know? And and to be honest, we watched a film uh, not too long ago on the podcast that I think has you know, clear inspiration from this film. Um, gosh, I'm blanking on the, 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 the saving face, saving face, you know, like we were joking about how, you know, throughout, especially the, the later nineties and into the early two thousands, you saw so many of these like, you know, yeah, romantic comedies, but it's like, but it's from this particular ethnic group's perspective, but this, and again, it's not necessarily a knock on, on those kinds of things. And certainly not a knock on saving face, Uh, but like, man, this is so intelligent and smart and sharp and, and funny and like genuinely funny. And again, the comedy never feels forced. It, it, it doesn't feel like my big fat Greek wedding. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like, Hey, let's make some obvious jokes here. Right? Like a lot of the humor in these interactions aren't coming in in a in a cartoonish way or in a caricature like a lot of the humor is in undercutting the caricatures undercutting the the prejudice undercutting the the cartoonish quality that in so many again what i'm trying to say is lesser films that would follow this would simply ham up and and try to play up this film is is constantly making the point that like the people you see are not what you think they are or who you think they are that the surface is is the, the least interesting level here to be playing with yeah i'm glad you brought that up cuz it is like another element of the the indie boom of the 80s and 90s that i even came across in my research was like some, one of the producers talking about Mississippi Masala and going, well, we have a one-third white audience, a one-third black audience, and a one-third Indian audience. And when you add up those indie-level audiences, it then becomes a real audience. And it's a film that can make money because it is explicitly targeting these communities and communities that love to go to the movies in particular, especially in the 20th century, right? So uh, there is that element of it that would, yes, be uh, quote-unquote exploited for good and for bad, obviously, like in this moment of uh, explosion of representation that was the early 1990s. Um, but it is funny that this is this was an indie. Uh, it only got nominated for an Independent Spirit Award after her first film, Salam Bombay, had won the best Oscar for foreign film. That's right. And then no, stu- no studio funded her next. I mean, it's like, you know, again, this was a, a Goldwyn slash. I mean, this is more actually like a British film. Uh, most of the money came from like British independent studios and then Sam Goldwyn. And it's like, yeah, Hollywood wouldn't even fund her uh, after winning the best best foreign film Oscar, you know? Like, they had nothing to do with it and yet would be happy to to exploit it later, oh, you know? Oh, sure, sure. And, you know, speaking of awards, I think, again, you know, something that, like, I totally forgot 
about when, uh, you know, getting back in and, and watching, uh, re-watching Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte is it got nominated for a shitload of Academy Awards. Yeah. You know, the perception has always been that whatever happened to Baby Jane and this were like these B movies made by Aldrich, who was, you know, a guy who... F- drifted back and forth between being what you'd call in that system independent and somebody who worked within the system. But like, yeah, the perception was that these were always kind of like campy B horror films, you know, psychological horror films. But like, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane was nominated for six Academy Awards. This was nominated for seven Academy Awards. I mean, like, it's crazy. It's crazy, yeah. you know? I mean, again, it's when you think about its an legacy. It's film, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. Like a horror film. Chiller. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it, it held the record uh, up to that point for most nominations for a horror film. Which is also funny that it's it's kind of, and I'm referring to it as like psychological horror, but it is kind of funny when you really kind of like step back and look at the film that someone would describe it as a horror film. Yeah. I mean, there's it's a crime story to me. Sure. I mean, it's <laughs> gruesome, but yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, I mean, there is like flirtation with like a supernatural element, like when she's, quote, losing her mind in the house and great and fakery, some very great fakery, you know, the 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 severed head of Bruce Dern, like rolling down the stairs yeah. gets me every time because like, oh, yeah. it is it's it's wild how much it does actually look like him. Like you normally when you see a fake severed head in a movie, you're always just like, yeah. But man, they get like the angles, the particular angles yeah. of Dern's face very well. That that's old Hollywood craftsmanship right there. Okay, will you guys confirm or deny uh, Joseph Cotton's playing dead? Yes. Did you think that he was completely still? Or that he was moving, and that if he was moving, was it a, a move in his mind as the character that he would not be able to perfectly be still? Wow, lot of lot of lot yeah, of lot to unpack mean when he's there. wrapped up let in me, the carpet. Me, when he's wrapped up in the car and when he's underwater, I feel like he sort of twitches, and to me, it's kind of like genius right. because. Mm-hmm. We don't, you know, what are we seeing, you know, what's real anymore, especially at that point. Yeah. Um, And I was like, I feel like he's doing a little bit with like pretending he can't can't play dead. Well, (laughs) there is. So, you know, for those who who don't understand the the context (laughs) here, um, you know, Sherman's already kind of let the the cat out of the bag a little bit here. But yes, uh, as the film progresses, you 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 discover that cousin Miriam, good old cousin Miriam, who is supposed to save the day and save the house from eminent domain, uh, she has been you know basically pulling off an epic prank with Joseph Cotton to to make Sweet Charlotte lose her mind. You know, so they're they're using like the fake severed hand. You know, they're they're they're, they're trying to give her visions you know make her think that she's going nuts you know um and it it climaxes with a moment where you know you talked about Chekhov's flower plant and more on that later but we also have Chekhov's gun correct because you know Dr. Drew when when Miriam first arrives like one of the first things he does is also reach into his his doctor's bag and pull out a little purse gun you know a very like southern gigolo thing this little revolver <laughs> and just go you might want to have this you know you never know and gives her this revolver that gets brandished a couple times 
but but uh, in like the, the the most dramatic part of Charlotte's like journey, she she grabs the gun during this absolutely like batshit dream sequence. I mean, it's like suddenly like last year at Marion Bad. I mean, it's it's crazy. I I can't even fathom what's going on with the 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 white like the whites in the image it looks like blown out but it's also diffused i mean it's it is a tour de force like the 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 dream sequence where she's suddenly back at the 1927 like bootlegger ball the phantasmagoria of memory yeah everyone's wearing masks blank face masks Hell yes absolutely right. white and black masks yeah it's it's nuts and and she then sees bruce dern she sees john her beloved who she's been calling out to throughout this whole film and she she freaks out she panics she melts down she shoots him uh, but we discover it's Joseph Cotton, and and what she's led to believe is, you crazy old biddy, you just murdered Doctor Drew. You know, you shot him, cause you're nuts, and you need to go away for this. You you've committed the crime, and and this is like where the con, the epic prank, it's it's going to a whole nother level. So she, Miriam's like, I'll help you, but you're gonna pay me off, and we'll ditch the body. So they wrap him up, and they they throw him in the fucking bayou or something like that. So this is what we've been discussing. That's the context behind it. But there is this moment when they when they when they roll Joseph Cotton into the fucking swamp and he's laying under the water and we get this shot of him in there where at the, right before it cuts, just a little bubble comes out of his mouth. So to your point, Marsh, now that I'm sort of putting it all back together, it almost seems to me like when he's also in the water, he's making direct eye contact with her he's smiling it's like he's smirking at her from the water and i in that regard i do believe he's like this will really really get her this is the little you know the little cherry on top of the uh the angel food cake we're serving up charlotte and all this madness my other theory, too, is that during that entire sequence, he is smashed because when he He's turns up. drunk. <laughs> yeah. And, and when he turns up later, they have a martini in the driveway. And before he's taken one sip of that martini, he is fucking so drunk. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's so dude. slurring. I yeah. feel like he starts slurring more and more as the movie progresses, yeah. too. He's like the one. I mean. He's so one of good. the drunkest dudes. And you know, it's funny is like, it takes a while for you to like really kind of get that aspect of his character that oh, he's yeah. just like a, an out of control alcoholic as well. Because there's a prior scene where they're like all just having dinner together and he's just boozing throughout it. But like when they're getting ready to sit down for dinner, he's just like, I'm going to go down and get some, some more booze <laughs> from the cellar. And Charlotte even's like, I didn't even know you knew where the key was or whatever, but it's like implied he knows where the key to the booth cellar is. He's always going down there, you know, he's just drinking all the time. And again, this like critique of that, that Southern culture, you know, that, that idle class always having a, a mint julep, a toddy, right. A gin and tonic, whatever to beat the heat, you know, throughout the day, which means just getting fucking blitzed from sun up to sundown when you have nothing better to do with your time. Someone else is doing all your chores, you know? Yeah, well, on that note, um, another connection uh, that you made me think about earlier, um, in terms of Mississippi Masala, the 
this family that employs Demetrius's dad uh, and are like the patrons of his carpet cleaning business. The those brief interactions the woman in particular had made me think about the context of Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte because both in the the prohibition era sequence and then throughout the film uh there is this this specter of racism in the south and and particularly um the infractions of this this family heritage this lineage um in the first scene things that the father says about how he builds his how he's (laughs) has built and plans to build his empire and then like Throughout the film, the 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 women that are brought in to pack the movers. things up, the movers, mm-hmm. um, even in the flashback sequence, it, as far as I could tell, or not the flashback sequence, but the hallucination sequence, the, all the partygoers were wearing white masks, and the the servants were wearing black masks. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, um, I mean again, like yeah, the the opening with Victor Bono. I mean, he is he's. Uh, saying monstrous things. I mean, he flat out says like, I, I would, I would have rather it been one of my, I think he says stable boys or some shit like that. Right. Like field boys. I think that's what he says. Field boys or field hands. He's like, cause then I could have just shot you. Right. Like I could have just murdered you and no one would have given a shit. No one would have done anything about it. You know I mean? He's like literally saying like, this is how we deal with this shit down here, right? You know, but you're white, so now I gotta figure something else out. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta handle this with a little bit more subtlety. But, but yeah, I mean, again, like the 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 specter that haunts this film, and there's there's quite a few, you know, old money, old families. But yeah, it's Daddy. also. Daddy, yeah, and it's just the South, you know. Daddy, I mean, Big Sam, he is the 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 remnants of this this old tradition of racism and and of lynching and of violence. And and what's also interesting though too, since you brought up like the movers, at a certain point they bring in these movers, and it's you know three black women who are trying to pack up Charlotte and get her out of there. They have a very interesting interaction. You know, because Charlotte like has this 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 epic, you know, this big epic meltdown again. You know, when when they touch her beloved music box or something like that, and she throws everybody out, um, and she's kind of just like flipping out and everything. But the the women who are packing her up, you know, when she's just sort of acting up around all of them, they're just like, boy, she's fired up today. And then one of them's like, yeah, she she's not as crazy as she acts, right? Like they see through it that, that to a certain extent she's acting up and that, that people perceive her as crazy, but they don't, they see through it, you know, that they're just like, nah, she's just, she's just a white rich woman in the South. She's not crazy. (laughs) She's, She's normal or whatever. Like this is nothing. Yeah. Throughout the film, there's different characters that express that there's like, especially at the end when she's being taken away, there's people gossiping even to that to that point, uh, just like you know. I never thought she was crazy, just a little odd things like that. Uh, but then central to the movie, there's this there's this other character, this investigator, uh, this <laughs> insurance agent the man from London, from London, yeah, who's 
who's just bumbling around Louisiana trying to put the pieces together. Yeah, the 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 true crime buff, right? <laughs> Isn't that what's basically going yeah, on? Totally there? walking around with a camera around his neck. Because I kept being like, I, again, and I'd seen this movie before, but I kept so so this guy Harry Wells, I think is his name. Yeah, Willis, Willis pronounced yeah. Wells. Wills, yeah. So this British guy who who arrives and we discover, oh, he's an insurance investigator. And I, I kept being like, oh, he's here on some sort of like official mission. And then you kind of learn like, no, he's not. He's just retired. Yeah. And this is like his hobby. Yeah. He saw her in London once. Yeah. Yeah. It was like fascinated by her case. And yeah. so now he's he's arrived just to sort of, I guess, in his idle time in life just revisit i mean it's like he's on vacation right well basically to me it was like it was like the case that got away he was like you know settling the 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 last score on his career because he's like he's like those he's like those guys that are like they'll they'll retire from like like the nypd cases yeah well i was thinking like the guys there's a whole bunch of them out there that that then like write books on like the the kennedy assassination you know (laughs) like i've rerun the forensics through a modern you know (laughs) through modern tech and i've figured it out yeah because the idea is that it was never pursued because jewel the the wife of john who, as far as I understand, actually killed him, yeah. uh, didn't file on the insurance claim because she already had her own money. Well, but also, it's also, like, directly said that that Sam, like, just paid off a shitload of fucking Oh, yes, yeah, it was covered so, up, of course, yeah. yeah. It was yeah. covered up, but, but then ultimately, like, it was, it went away for that long because the last thing would have been the insurance investigation but there wasn't one because she didn't she already had money she was already independently wealthy and so he was it would have you know it would have been this thing that he didn't have to do he didn't have to pursue it while he was working it was just this file in his desk but then he had met her and so obviously this mystery stuck with him Mm -hmm. because it's all about the perception and at the end of the film he figures it out uh, and I was still trying to like, I was still wondering what the hell was going on up until that last moment, up until he said Jewel never filed the claim. And it hit me, oh, okay, okay I'm a dummy. She did it. It was her. Well, really, like both films are about moving on. Both films are about letting go of the past, of looking at what's immediately in front of you and not you know forsaking that or the promise of the future the opportunities of the future for like the traumas of the past you know and that's certainly the thing with with her father because again you, the movie like the 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 multi perspective view of of everything that's been going on like we suddenly then shift to to him Going back to Uganda. I mean, he goes back to Uganda. They will hear his case. Finally, he's going to be vindicated. He's going to have his moment of justice. And it's this question of even like, is it worth it at this point? But he decides, I'm going to go back to Uganda. I'm going to confront my friend. I'm going to go find him, you know, after 20 years of not hearing from him. Now, we also were led to believe uh, that, that, you know, uh, from, from Mina's perspective, like the dad, Jay, had shut his friend out. 
that it was him. You know, this this not hearing from him for so long was was because he was so upset by how he had to leave Uganda. Like he saw his friend again as like he betrayed me and and that's it. I cut him off. I turned my back on him. But when he goes back to Uganda, we learn that like actually he's been trying to get a hold of his friend this entire time that he's written countless letters. And so when he goes to Uganda, he's like sort of we get again like so much more information that we didn't have because of our our limited perspective and we discover that his friend basically i think it's implied for helping him get out right for helping some indians escape idi amin's wrath was disappeared by the amin regime this like horrible moment you know but what's interesting is like you know he does he goes back to uganda and then it's kind of like yeah you can't go home again right but it comes back to something that denzel shares with mina earlier you know and this again this idea about the, the past and letting go of the past you know when they're walking along that river and they have their first really passionate kiss and they're just sort of reflecting on life and experience Denzel says, you know, my mother used to say that you could never step in the same river twice. What's that supposed to mean? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they kind of discuss that idea a little bit, right? But what's the idea? Well, the water flows. It's not the same water. It's not the same river. Time marches on. The world spins. And so when he goes back to Uganda... That's it. You know, he's trying to step back into the same river, but it's not the same river. You know, he even goes back to the house and we we see the camera uh, matching a shot from earlier when he was a young man in that that beautiful home overlooking the hillside in Uganda. And now it's decaying. It's falling apart. You know, Uganda is not what it once was. And he has to have that kind of realization on his own there that this is. This is not... What does the cab driver say? Uh, Everything's in runes, but it's still heaven. (laughs) He says the good things are still good. Yeah, yeah. But right, and and ultimately, yeah, he he rejects it. You know, he has to. Um, And then, you know, immediate cut to uh, the mom working at the liquor store, doing all the hard work while this guy's on his Ugandan odyssey, (laughs) ultimately to not even go to court, all those years wasted, all that stewing, you know? Mm -hmm. But, right, he gets it, he comes back, and then, yeah, we're, you know, I thought that we were going to get a really daring uh, end to Mississippi Masala. And I was actually not pleased with the credit stinger because yeah. it's just too obvious, you mm-hmm. know? Uh, listeners, if you watch the film, uh, judge for yourself. But, you know, you didn't need that, in my opinion, and it's kind of corny. Yeah. Um, it's fine, you know, but leaving it with, like, yeah, Jay, ending with Jay, I think, would have been a little more impactful, you know? I agree. I agree. Because, you know, prior to that, essentially what, what we, we, what transpires is, you know, all these communities, which have been sort of, you know, putting their two cents in, trying to drive a wedge between these two people. Finally, like Mina and Demetrius are just like, fuck them all, fuck them all. Let's just run off. You know, Uh, we're not going to rest on the traditions slash racism of, 
our past of our, our past communities, our families, our friends and whoever, we're just going to run off and build this life together. And, and the way it's sort of left with them, it is this kind of like very open, uh, you know, there's nothing definitive about whether or not they're even going to remain together. I mean, they're just sort of like, like taking off like thieves in the night. And like, that's pretty much the last we get of them, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. The rainy phone booth. The rainy yeah. phone booth, dude. Until, of course, like you're describing this post credit stinger, which is, yes, very corny. I mean, it's, it, it and, and I'm so glad that at least it is in the credits because I think in that regard, then you can kind of just read it as like a, well, that's not part of the movie. That's part of the credits or whatever, you know, like that's its own it's thing. It's a credits fantasy. You a post credits scene. But yeah, you know, they're I all mean, the rage in the MCU these days, right? Yeah. You know? But it is a fantasy and that's cool, you know, and it is this affirming thing. And, and again, this idea of, yeah, getting, you know, yeah, letting go of of the past or whatever, yeah. you know. And the way that Charlotte does it is by uh, pushing a big-ass flower pot onto yeah. the heads of Olivia Dowlin and Joseph Cotton. She of, crushed them. Of going, you know what? Like, I've been fighting against this whole, this whole injustice I felt of people, you know, calling me a murderer when I wasn't a murderer. So you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to be exactly who everyone thinks I am. And she fucking kills them stone fucking dead. And she is now like totally sane again. Like, yeah. like it was like the perfect pill, you know, when that's all she needed. Drugs. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Velma's last act, you know? Yeah. Velma. Oh God. Yeah. Her, 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 her martyrdom like led to that. Yeah. But, but no, it's, it's, I mean, man, I love the ending of, Hush, hush, sweet Charlotte, so much. Because again, you know, this is really just such a great, like, Southern Gothic, as you were saying, Marsh, like, Southern fried, like, psychodrama. Because, like, Aldrich really does, and his screenwriters, like, nail, uh, again, something that, like, Mississippi Masala covers as well, which is that in these small Southern towns, everybody's in everybody's business all the time, right? Like, it's so different from, if you think about, like, urban, you know, and certainly, like, northern United States, like, urban dynamics, the whole point there is the the paradox of the city is we're surrounded by so millions of fucking people and nobody nobody cares, you know? You know, like, uh, collateral, right? I heard about this guy died on the MTA. Broke <laughs> around for three days, yeah. But right, in, in, in the city, the point is that you're, you're desperate for someone to just like pay attention to you for five fucking minutes and you can't have it. But in the South, the idea is like everybody knows every fucking thing about you and they're spinning it into some big ass fucking tale. And, and both of these films nail it. But man, in Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, I just love it because like the whole thing is like the gossiping of the town that has gone on for 30 years, you know, that, that she's this like mythical creature of sorts and that she's crazy and deranged and, and she's a faded beauty and she's ugly. But after this and after the, the murder of Davlin and Joseph Cotton, she's just like, all right, take me away. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go to jail. Like now I'm happy to leave this home, right? The whole movie, she was fighting being ripped out of there by the authorities. And now she gets on her finest, you know, like 
you know, driving outfit, you know, yeah. she gets yeah. a good She looks as on. like young and as good as, as she has the entire movie when yeah. she walks out the, you know, the doors at the end in her Sunset Boulevard moment. Yeah. You know? And like posing and everybody in that moment is enraptured by her and they see her as that beauty. You know, it isn't yeah. just that like that we do and that, you know, she looks like it, but like everyone is just like, man, she's so cool. She's awesome. She's like a hero in the town, you know, the cops, like there's no animosity. They're all treating her with like the, the respect of this family that has owned this town for so many years. Like once again, she's no longer this like punching bag and this joke. She is this like, you know, almost like royalty to these people. Yeah. It occurs to me now, you know, I uh, I unfortunately pulled up the Charlie Rose Miranair oh, interview. God. He's just talking over her the whole time. Um, but uh, she says at a certain point that, you know, her film is about exile and memory. And I think Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte is also about exile and memory. And that moment is, yes, her return from exile mm -hmm. you know where she's been languishing all these years uh and finally you know rejoining society by maybe going to jail but maybe not but maybe you know? not yeah. it is the south you know yeah. she's got a shitload of money and again and also like she was right you know like she was justified to put to push that flower pot on them yeah oh, and, totally. and I, I believe that the way aldrich is capturing it like that is being sort of implied yeah. that like She's not gonna get the chair for this, nah, you know. She's like gonna go to she's her stock hospital. has never been higher in this community, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Because this town loves a good tale, and when they find out about it, you know, it, it was reminding me in this moment of somebody we love bringing up on the podcast, Clint Eastwood, and Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, sure. and again the way he captured and fell in love with that very, a very similar dynamic story of like old money in the South, new money in the South, eccentricity, right? Big, stupid houses, murder, and the community and the way that the community reacts. And that people down there have a different definition of justice, right, than we do up here in the North, certainly from John Cusack's perspective in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, right? But like, man, I watch, I look at the ending and I'm just like, fuck yeah, it's a happy ass ending, you know? Like, yeah. she, she's, she's back, baby, you know? Those last couple of scenes are, are wild. Like, the idea that their own folly is just that, like, to the idea of the country setting, like, they're just talking about their whole master plan. She's just hanging on the balcony hearing them speak they're saying it all out loud to your very good health you look absolutely ravishing thank you sir i bet lazarus never felt as good as i do <laughs> yeah, he's like glug 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 he's wearing this cool ass seersucker suit she's wearing a hot dress hot low-cut dress yeah yep. and full miriam and and it's perfect they're just embraced holding each other and and the yeah. planter comes I mean, down it, straight on him. It really is a movie, you know, like if you were like if I was directing a movie where people like looked in and out of windows a lot, I would watch this movie, you know, like oh, yeah. because of the house and because of the space and like what you guys were talking about earlier, the angles, bird's eye, high angle, low angle, like always playing with the perspective of, of the house. And it's like 
you know, and then it all, of course, you know, comes to a head with her overhearing them basically gossiping about themselves, you know? Man, it's perfect at least that, you know, in whatever ways these movies bucked up against the topic, uh, we had, like, central, like, ladies' night gossip. Uh, and <laughs> crucially, in uh, in Mississippi Masala, when it begins the gossip sequence, mm-hmm. it just cuts to, like, all of a sudden, like, women who aren't yeah, characters in the film, sequence. they're just, like, on the phone gossiping. Mm-hmm. The first one, gossip number one in the credits is Mira Nair. So, you know, she gets it. (laughs) Totally. Do you know what she told her mother? Just wait, I'm telling you. I love him, that's not a crime. Yeah, can you imagine dumping Harry Patel for a black? I'm sending my Namita to India as soon as possible. Hey, Jaya, they get ideas from each other. Then it spreads like a disease. Can I speak to Mina, please? There's no Mina Sheena here. Well, uh, these were our ladies' attempts at ladies' nights. Hey. Sherman. Like I said, I mean. Great work. I had a lot of ladies, a lot of night in mind, you know? Like, <laughs> I'm very sure we all literal did. ladies' night. You made earlier, you made a crack about, you know, the comma between ladies and night referring to one of the films. Which one were you talking about? I, I would say that's Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte. Oh, ladies' night. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's, I guess, the way I saw it. Just in know? the sense that, like, again, going into it, I'm thinking, like, it's got, it's, it's a party, right? You know, they're having a good time. And, you know, most certainly most of them are not having a good time in this Joseph movie. Joseph Cotton's having a great he's time. He's having a great time. I guess time. he's not a lady, and but... I, I was having know. a great time yeah. watching them Us, have, the have a night. Mm-hmm. We're loving it. For sure. <laughs> but that was fulfilled by Mississippi Masala because through thick and thin, everyone's having a time in that movie. Almost everybody. That one guy, Anil, is not having He's going a through time. it. They wrecked up his car. His wife won't have sex with him. You know, he's taking it out on everyone. Yeah, he got roughed up by Denzel, you know. Sucks. <laughs> but, um, okay. Um, well, anyways. Yeah, um, just get on with it. I get, <laughs> um, some of my favorite Ladies' Nights movies going into it, in my mind, thinking about multiple ladies, the lives of these ladies, having a good time, particularly perhaps at night. Um, uh, one that did came to mind that I was able to remember, uh, desperately seeking Susan, um, big time, bunch of ladies, uh, two, two great ladies, Madonna, whole lot of lady. Um, also, uh, Sophia Coppola's the bling ring. Uh, I've got a fondness, uh, for that movie, uh, less, less, less good times, um, but, uh, along on, on, in that vein, um, a lot of the movies I was thinking about in particular were, were horror films. Uh, there are a lot of films following a, an ensemble of ladies, whether or not they're having a good time, uh, usually at night. Uh, and so, the craft was a big one for me growing up. I love that movie. Um, and so to cap it off, um, a movie you turned me on to nine to five classic, classic ladies night movie. 
Uh, I turned really you on to nine day, to five. Really, ladies' day nine to five are actually working hours. Yeah. yeah. Sure, but nevertheless. Cobble but a movie night. that you could watch about ladies at night or that ladies might watch at night after a hard day of work. Yeah, or, okay. you know, kidnapping their boss, whatever it sure. is. Sure, yeah, um, whatever. Uh, Derek Jarman's Jubilee. Uh, that <laughs> lady's <laughs> going nuts. Crazy. Uh, that is a, a, a nutso movie, but all right, uh, you're talking about like bucking up against the. T- <laughs> is yeah. that bucking? You know, usually we only pick like one or two. Oh, you know? sorry, sorry. <laughs> then uh, I don't care. That's insane. <laughs> 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 oh, that was worth it. Oh, God. I haven't seen it. That's that's where mine was going into it. But you uh, watch it and then you laugh, you know, when you think yeah. back on him picking ladies that one for <laughs> ladies' night, you know. Yeah. Uh, maybe another ladies' common night. God save um, the queen, dude. But anyways, uh, thanks for bringing these movies. This was a lot of hey, fun. I thanks, thoroughly enjoyed. Thanks for filling in. Yeah. Well, it's uh, it's Ryan's topic next week. Oh. And. Uh, We've got a little uh, message here uh, from him. A dispatch. Uh, A dispatch that's uh, apparently going to tell us uh, what the topic is. Hello, boys. This is Ryan coming to you live from the beautiful sunny terrace of the Lisbon Cinemateca. I am sitting out here. We're about to order um, Dos Café. And some sparkling water. sparkling water. I'm here with Nabil. I'm here with Molly, my wife. I'm here with Sam, Nabil's partner. It's a lovely day in Lisbon, and we're getting ready to see Texasville, Peter Bogdanovich's film. On 35. And, um, on 35. On 35. And um, Nabil, why don't you share us a few words with the, the boys and the listeners? Hi, boys. Definitely come with Ryan next time to Lisbon. We'll have a fun trip. We have this plan to uh, take Oliveira's body and uh, sneak it into the into the pantheon because we think it's ridiculous he wasn't put there after his passing anyway yeah uh <laughs> that's it come we we're waiting for you yeah olivera's more than earned it um yeah so i guess for the topic for our next episode you know i'm about to check out the cinemateca bookstore and the guys give me a lot of grief it's called, it's called the shadow the Shadowland. And guys, give me a lot of grief for bringing up Ryan's book corner, Ryan's book nook on the pod. But I will say that my next topic was inspired by a book I just read, Richard Powers' The Overstory, which is about a group of climate activists in the late 90s uh, who were labeled as terrorists. And I was also thinking about the recent film How to Blow Up a Pipeline. And I was pretty invigorated by both of them, so I thought next week we can look at films about activism. And I would say, you know, not essential, but you will get bonus points if the activists in the film are more commonly perceived as terrorists. So that is the challenge for next week. I'm looking forward to see you all, but for now, I'm going to enjoy this sunny afternoon. Bye, boys. Ciao, boys. But he didn't really send it in time, so we're just going to pretend that we heard the topic. Oh. Uh, so it sounds good. So uh, one, one, two, three. Oh. Interesting. I wouldn't have gone there myself. <laughs> have fun with that one. Yeah, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks, everyone, I guess. Good night. I'm Ryan. Okay, thanks, everyone. Now see here, Miss Hollis. We've done everything we could to accommodate you, but this time you've gone too far. Now we got a bridge to build and roads to lay, and we ain't got no more time to fool with you. Where you are, I could spit in your eye with no strain at all. Now, Miss Hollis, I ain't in no mood for jokes. I'm going straight into town and see the sheriff. I don't care where you go straight. Just so long as you go. And take that and them with you. Now, Miss Hollis, you know as well as I do, the state of Louisiana requisitioned this whole area, including your house, more than six months ago. Just because some old fool in that room signed a little bitty piece of paper doesn't make it so. Nobody ever asked me to sign anything. And nobody's gonna tear down my house to build a Kenland Bridge or anything else. So you just clear off my property once and for all. Some folks seem to think they got a natural born right to get away with murder.